Hello, welcome back to Out of Curiosity, where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. My name well is done, Garland. Well yes, right through that, nice and easily. Uh, I'm joined uh, once again by my good friend on the West Coast. Introduce yourself. Cameron Hager out here in Portland, Oregon. It is it is seventy is like seventy six degrees in Arkansas today. It has got a little breeze, a little bit of clouds. It is phenomenal down here in September right now as we're recording this. At least, how's it up in Portland? It's about the same, man. I think we're at eighty, not a cloud in the sky, and we're all counting down because when the when the calendar turns to October, it just becomes a, a, a hellscape of rain up here. <laughs> so yeah. we're, we are we're savoring it. We're unseasonably cool right now, and college football is taking off, so everything here is uh, obviously different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here's our topic today, and uh, it's another weighty one. And so, um, if you've if you've been listening out of curiosity and and, and following along, uh, we've we've done a series of these, and the series began, you might have to go back and listen. Um, We did one that just said, what must, you know, all caps, all Christians believe? Kind of looking at what is it that Christians uh, would die for? What is it that makes essential Christianity, essential Christianity? And obviously there's some variation in the way that Christians understand some nuances of things that we might say they divide for or debate for or decide for, but there are certain elements that make Christianity Christianity and therefore unique from other religions. We looked at Mormonism, and so if you've uh, been following along uh, and if you can go back and listen to that one. If you haven't, we did an episode called Are Mormons Christians? And we're kind of following that uh, series here by asking another another question and a question that surfaces a lot in, you know, especially in the uh, in the States. Um, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay, what must all Christians believe? Well, Mormons kind of sound like Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses really sound like Christians. So oh, isn't this all the same thing? So help us sort it out. Yeah, out of the gate, like... I don't think our intention with this, without of curiosity, is to turn it into like a heresy hunter podcast or something right, like right. that. I'm not sure if we we may do one or two more along these lines, but I doubt we'll do many. Um, but these are just important groups to to talk about because they're uh, they're growing. They're in our backyards. We probably. I mean, probably most of us have had an encounter with uh, maybe in particular a Jehovah's Witness who's come door to door, um, handing out materials or whatever, wanting to have a conversation. And so it's just really important to know, like, what what do these people believe and how should I sort of situate my Christianity in relationship to them? I also have to say Prince was a devout Jehovah's Witness, uh, the artist formerly known as Prince. Did, were you was aware really? of that, Garland? He was. I did not know that. He was, and in fact, as I understand it, later in his life, he—I uh, mean, he—he came—he came to the Jehovah's Witness faith some point later in life. Uh, I think, like definitively, but later, like in his latter career era, he would go door to door one one day a week, um, and uh, go by a different name. And <laughs> there's little stories recorded <laughs> where where he'd be he'd like be like handing out materials, and they'd be like. Aren't Does you? anyone know that you look a lot like Prince? And he'd yeah. say, "I get that a lot." <laughs> so it's like, "What? Introduce yourself. I'm the artist formerly known as Prince, also known as Mark, <laughs> John." Like he just makes up a, a boring name, and everybody's like, I, "No, you're Prince, dude!" Like you're nobody's Prince, buying dude. this. Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I did not I know that. That was an interesting, interesting fact there. But anyway, to 
maybe to, to disclaim again, I might make the same disclaimers I made before our, our previous episode along these lines, which is I am certainly not an expert uh, on this religion. Um, and this isn't really going to give like a thorough overview of what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, similar to our Mormonism episode. We're asking the question, is the Jehovah's Witness faith a branch of Christianity? Should we consider it like a denomination? Are they, um, maybe with some different beliefs, brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, and once again, spoiler out of the gate, this is almost verbatim from last time. We're going to say the answer is no to that. And we're going to explain why. But again, again, sorry to sound like a broken record, but that does not raise the question of, do these people really believe what they're saying? Uh, this isn't addressing the question of, do they do nice things in the world? This isn't a question of, uh, are there are they kind and and uh, you know respectful people? So we're not trying to disparage anyone, but this is a really important question to answer. Um, and I, I it would be really interesting. I actually kind of hope now, by the time we're doing this episode, that some of our listeners they will start immediately anticipating the kinds of questions we're about to ask of of this particular right. faith and kind of beat us to the punch because the same tool set you just keep applying uh, every time these questions come up. And I'm excited to do that here again. Yeah, I, I think it's important, you know, again, like like last time uh, when we talked about the the Mormon uh, religious faith. Um, again, in our modern world, it sounds loving and it sounds tolerant to sort of, oh, y'all are all, y'all are all the same. You kind of all believe the same. Let's stop, y'all need to stop bickering over these differences. And again, like we said last time, we would, we would never apply that same dismissive attitude to somebody we met from another nation and say, oh, well, you, you, all you people from Asia are the same or all you people from Europe are the same. I think most of us in the modern world, at least, would say that's a really unloving, kind of unfair posture to start with. And so if you're listening to this and, and maybe you're skeptical or maybe you uh, think, oh, it's all pretty silly. They're all talking about the same God, the same Jesus. Why don't y'all just stop bickering? Um, again, uh, the same kind of charity that you would probably grant someone uh, coming from you know another part of the world just to say, yeah, we're, you're not all the same and I need to listen and learn. That same thing is something that we might ask for here and to, to sort of gloss over really profound differences between two religious groups, um, it, it, may, it may sound tolerant and loving at first, but oftentimes it can be really dismissive um, and, and very kind of unloving and intolerant. And so we wouldn't extend that same, uh, that same idea to most other things in life. We're just asking for the same, maybe for the same treatment here. So I, th I think it just, it's important to state again. Uh, okay, so now, disclaimer's gone. We're diving in. Help there us understand are. it. And, and maybe if you're a regular listener, you are already anticipating where we're going. So uh, Cameron, take it away. All right. Well, I will just give just a, a, a quick couple of minute overview of some of the some of the basic kind of historical factors here. So in the in the late 1870s, again, so just out of the gate, we're talking about, again, a very, very recent sort of religious movement or even interpretation of the Bible, as we'll see. Um, there was this guy named Charles Taze Russell, and he was this sort of like restoration movement minister who had been formed and shaped actually in the Seventh-day Adventist uh, denomination, which um, we won't say too much about the Adventists, uh, maybe to say um, I think the general kind of consensus is that this is a Christian denomination, although they have some a couple of of ideas they hold on to that are very unique and many would say heterodox views. But the core in terms of their understanding of nature of God, salvation, Jesus, uh, I think we would say those are those are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they're some divide for issues between us. So he comes out of the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, but he begins kind of 
taking on these novel interpretations of his Bible and he begins publishing his, his doctrine, which I think we could just, we'll just go ahead and call it heretical doctrine in this periodical that he titled Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. He ends up starting this publishing company in 1881 that's called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, um, which is kind of the like a core institution of this movement. The name Jehovah's Witness is actually just sort of a popular name given to this organization. Um, and they, before he died in 1916, they published up to like 16 million copies of his books and pamphlets. We, they're successful publishers, at least, we might yeah. say. Like they got the word yeah. out there. Yeah, that's the a word was good getting uh, out track record, yeah. So... You may, if you've had any interaction with them, you may have seen that the two magazines that they're known for, the most most common is called The Watchtower, and then the other is called Awake, with an exclamation point. And maybe I would just say about Russell that he's a super complicated character um, with, with some pretty egregious sins that emerged over time. Um, and and it, it seems, it, it came out over the course of his life as he got in a bunch of legal trouble and stuff, uh, had to testify under oath that he seems to have been using his ministry somewhat deceptively for just incredible personal financial gain. Um, Plenty of Christians do that too, we should acknowledge. But more importantly, he had effectively zero theological training, nor had he received any kind of ordination or authorization for ministry from any denomination, any minister whatsoever. And I just really like the way um, author Walter Martin in his book, Kingdom of Cults, underlines this point. I'm just going to quote from Martin for a second. He says, Russell denied many of the cardinal doctrines of the Bible, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the physical resurrection and return of Christ, eternal punishment, the reality of hell, the eternal existence of the soul, the validity of the infinite atonement, um, to state a few. The honest fact is that Russell had no training or education to justify his interpretation of Scripture. And by this, it is not meant that great education is a necessary qualification for exegesis or Bible study. But when a man contradicts practically every major doctrine of the Bible, he ought to have the education needed to defend, if that is possible, his arguments. That's the end of the quote. And I think that kind of puts a, puts a pen on some of the most significant issues with with Russell. And it's, it's not to say, of course, plenty of brilliant, no one needs a theological degree or an ordination to know the gospel, to even become a deep, wise student of the Bible. But if you're getting singular Bible interpretations that no one has, <laughs> has right. come up with in nearly 2,000 years of church history, you have to begin to start asking some questions about maybe... Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. Maybe there's right, something right. here that's off base and not this long tradition uh, with a remarkable amount of consistency on these on these core doctrines. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got a little bit of history of uh, at least the founding of it. Um, give us obviously the mag. I think most people you think Jehovah's Witness, you think they came to my door and they have a magazine. Um, and so, give us sort of some of the distinctives. Um, how did those emerge? Yeah, well, some of the distinctives um, include, well, maybe I should back up and say this because this is really important. Um, in 1961, the the group actually published its own formal equivalence translation of the Bible. Their tri- translation is called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Um, it's been translated into like 129 languages as well from there. So it's a major, it's a major publishing feat. That's a massive uh, yes. you know, translation Huge. project. Yeah, yeah. Huge. 
now here's the thing though since the release of of this translation in 1950 it's been criticized for changing the meaning of words and texts whole texts to fit sort of pre-existing Jehovah's Witness doctrine it's been revised five times and probably critical people would say those revisions have been to further sort of like soften where the Bible <laughs> the Bible as we've all received it contradicts right, their doctrine. Right. They, they kind of keep mutating it into uh, sort of the image of their theology. And um, and maybe maybe to start, you know, because it, it underlines this cross-section of biblical translation and their core beliefs, we could take a look at, at a passage in John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, what do you guys use preach at fellowship out of? Do you have a consistent usually either use? NIV or ESV? Um, okay. It kind of depends on who's teaching. Yeah, but usually those two. Yeah, that's the same at Door of Hope Northeast. So John John one one both ESV and NIV they translate that verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the New World Translation um, translate the translates the same passage as in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was a God. And that one little article there um, has massive implication for their right. whole theological system. And it mm-hmm. sort of underpins so much of their view of Christ, their view of, of God, um, and so much from there. And so maybe we should just start there because I've had, I've had to my door... Jehovah's Witnesses come up and and in our brief conversations, they've, they've said, hey, why don't we pull out the Bible? And they'll pull out their translation of the Bible and read this verse. And what they're trying to do is discredit any sort of a belief in in the divinity of Jesus uh, and, the, and the Trinity. And so... Are we doing some grammar? Are we going to get into grammar? I think maybe we should do. Oh a my touch gosh! Of Greek some of you, grammar. out of out of curiosity, <laughs> listeners, some of you could not be more happy right now. You're like, please bring it on. We need us some Greek grammar. Uh, okay, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I guess. I guess before we dive into the grammar, it might be worth stating what John one one is communicating as translated by the ESV and NIV. You know, lay the stakes for us. Uh, set out the stakes because I think it can grammar can get really dry really quickly unless we peel back and go, okay, what am I trying to solve here? So get, give us the stakes for this discussion. Well, John John one one is a pivotal verse in formulating the doctrine of the Trinity, which as we've said over and over again in these conversations, is one of the key distinctives of historic Orthodox Christianity, kind of most clearly distilled in uh, the Nicene Creed. So it's it's the Trinity is obviously a word that's not found in the Bible itself, which is why it's controversial and why you'll have these kind of splinter groups begin to challenge it. But it's a it's a doctrine, it's a it's a way of talking about the the nature of God that is found with reasonable clarity in all kinds of places. And this is one of the kind of key places. And so in this passage is saying in the beginning, John is calling back to Genesis one in the beginning. That is a, that is as loaded of a phrase in the biblical imagination as you could possibly have. He's saying in the beginning, in the, the, the story of creation and before, um, was the word. So there's this figure known as the word and it says the word was with God. And you go, okay, well, there, there at the beginning, there was the word. That's interesting. Um, Cause Genesis one, one says in the beginning, God it doesn't say this, anything about this word character, but okay. Now we see that this word was with God. And now the third phrase here, and the word 
was God. So John 1, 1 is establishing that there is another, and you have to develop this out in other places as well, but we come to see across John that this word here in chapter 1 is referring to Jesus. It's referring to the Jesus who was coming into the world in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. This same word, who is Jesus, was both with God in the beginning and was God. So right there, you have that tension, that push and pull that the Trinity invites us into, that there's one God, three persons, the three persons are distinct from one another, and yet each of them is God. You have, you have that little play right here, in, at least between two persons of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So to a Jehovah's Witness unpacking this, to make the, the intentional choice to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, lay out for us then what is the claim? Because you said in our previous uh, episode about what must all Christians believe, that it first orients us to Jesus. Um, It orients us to the message about Jesus. What is the difference then in this message about Jesus that this translation is communicating? Well, if he is a God, that means he is a distinct God. On a surface level, you might read that as, okay, so we've got a polytheism. We've got a collection of at least two gods here. You've got God and the Word, who was a God. Um, So you've instantly got a division uh, that violates the kind of the core idea of the triunity of, of the biblical God, as well as the idea that... Well, I should go on to say it's actually more complicated than that in Jehovah's Witness theology because... Um, they actually understand Jesus to be God's first creation. And then he was, in to use kind of biblical language, he was, Jesus was then the agent of the rest of creation. Creation was created through him, but only after he was first created as that first act of creation. There's even more complicated stuff where they think that he was actually in his pre-incarnate state, uh, the angel Gabriel. And then when he came, it, so it's all, it's all just very, it's starting right, to conflate right. biblical characters and ideas that we all hold very clearly distinct in, in the Old and New Testaments. So anyway, they're, they're trying to, to create basically a class for this word who is Jesus that is not on equal par not on equal yeah. power and equal plane with God Himself. That's that's yeah. the, the basic idea here. And I think again, this is where this is where we don't want to paper over differences, um, as if every everybody's saying the same thing. And we said in the Mormonism episode, the fundamental conception of who God is is actually pretty distinct. I'll speak about it in in more Jewish categories. If you ask a Jewish person what makes Yahweh distinct, they would say, and and just imagine this if you can. If you had a whiteboard, I could draw it. Um, there is up at the top, there is the creator. And then there's a big, thick line. And then there is everything on the other side of that line, and that is the creation. What makes Yahweh unique is that he alone goes on the other side of that line. And when the New Testament authors, and John in this case comes along and says something very surprising and something very, very interesting, he says, where do I put Jesus? I actually put Jesus on the other side, the Yahweh side, the God side of this thick line. Um, I think what we've what we're talking about now is one God with two persons or two essences on that side of the line. Um, what a Jehovah's Witness is going to do is then say, well, actually, it's almost like there's three tiers of this line. There's God up at the top, God the Father, then a thick line, then Jesus, and then everything derivative from Jesus. But it, but it's still the the same idea. There's a thick line, and we put Jesus below that line. The same claim would be that of a Mormon and a Muslim, that Jesus is on the other side of that line. Only God, we might say, the Father, goes on the 
uh, the, the top side of that thick line. And right off the bat, fundamentally, that's a very different conception of God. Um, is, that, is that a fair way to express that? Absolutely. I think so. Okay. So are we doing Greek grammar or no? Well, let, can we do it quickly? I think we can. Okay. Um, in, in looking at this passage, so the, the John 1, 1 passage, uh, it is true. And if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness that has some, some background in this, what they'll tell you is um, the first two instances of God that are mentioned here, um, there is a little bit of a variation in how God is mentioned in uh, this third clause. So in the beginning was the word, then in our second clause, and the word was with God. Now, in this instance, the second uh, the second clause in Greek, the word God has a definite article in front of it. In Greek, there is no indefinite article. An indefinite article would be like a or an, and a definite article would be like the, the table versus a table. Uh, there is no indefinite article in Greek. You would only use a definite article to say the table. And in the second clause, and the word was with God with a definite article. In the third clause, however, and God was the word, there is no longer a definite article. And so the NWT translators are coming along and saying, well, 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 see, now we're talking about not the God, but a God. That's the heart of where the translation is coming from. Now, there's a bunch of grammatical rules that uh, negate what they're saying, but actually way, it's way simpler than the grammatical rules. The translators do not apply that same translation throughout the rest of even the first part of John chapter 1. So another example in chapter 6. Um, there was a man sent from, now here it is, the same word for God, but no definite article. But nowhere do we translate that there was a man sent from a God. Mm -hmm. And throughout the rest of this chapter, in fact, throughout the rest of John, God is treated normally as if it's the God without the article. And it's only in the one instance, John chapter 1, that they take that to mean uh, an indefinite God, a God. And so um, there's a lot of grammatical rules we could go into with fancy names and none of those matter. Within the text itself, this application is very inconsistent. So to the point you're making, it seems to be a translation making a theological point counter to the rest of the passage um, as opposed to just following the normal conventions that take place in all of the rest of the passage. So Greek grammar time closed. You can go back to helping us understand what's going on with, uh, with the Jehovah's Witness from a big picture perspective. Uh, anything else you want to add to that or is that sufficient enough? I think that's great. Yeah. Was it quick enough? It was super quick. Okay, I had my, I had my fast. I had my doubts, <laughs> but you, uh, you passed That's about as colors. fast as you can do it and leave out a ton of stuff. But yeah, <laughs> there it is. There you go. Um, okay, so we've dipped, we've, we're way in the weeds here. Um, okay, we're trying to get our arms around the differences. So help, you know, again, help us do that. Yeah. Well, maybe another thing. So that's, so first of all, let's say that's a huge, that's about as huge of difference as you can have. Yeah. B between, yeah. Uh, between, it, it, if you're using biblical language, God, Jesus, so-and-so, but you're saying, uh, you're rejecting a trinitary trinitarian conception. You've already stepped on that landmine we keep coming back to, which is you've you've cut yourself off from the Nicene Creed, which is you can't overstate its importance for kind of holding historic Christianity together as a boundary. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk a little bit about this word Jehovah. It's right there in the kind of common name that's given to this group, Jehovah's Witnesses. So another thing we need to discuss is what's up with that? Why do they, you know, what is this word Jehovah? And what we would just say is they, they believe that God's one true name, the name that we have to refer to him by, is Jehovah. Um, and so I don't know, I assume most people 
have heard the name Jehovah, I always think of Jay-Z, who in his incredible <laughs> blasphemous ability calls himself Jehovah, the God MC. Uh, <laughs> tread oh, lightly. my God. <laughs> tread, tread lightly, my friend. Um, <laughs> you never heard I that always, before? I always forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think I've blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Um so the name is a sort of, uh, it's a common modernized, like Latinized form of the Hebrew. Do we know this word tetragrammaton? The, uh, the, it's the oh four, yeah, that's a fun word. Four, tetra, four, gram, yeah, yeah four letter four letters, name yeah. um, for God, which, which usually in our circles we refer to, to as Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, in English letters, it's Y-H-W-H. Uh, and... You know, actually, how you pronounce that name, Yahweh, it's actually up for, there's still some scholarly debate around how did the ancient Hebrews pronounce it when they did. Actually, they didn't want to most of the time. Uh, but the use of his personal name is regarded as incredibly important for them. Um, and their understanding is that it, can, it must be pronounced Jehovah, which is just a, a different way of inserting Choosing different vowels to insert between those consonants. Right. Um, we won't right. again. We don't have to get into. All we can this do Hebrew right now. grammar if you want. Okay, now I would we can love do, to do Hebrew. We can grammar. do Hebrew grammar. Let's just not. <laughs> let's not do it. But, but basically, they've they've taken a legitimate uh, way to vocalize uh, the divine name in 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 the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but they've said this is the one proper way that it must be pronounced it must be understood and that we must address him in but there's a couple problems with that a i've already said it's probably not the way that, that ancient right. jews vocalized yeah, most jews the most word. jews would just simply say adonai when they were yeah. addressing yahweh um and that's right yeah it's a very fascinating story how jehovah even got to us um so totally. yeah it, yeah you're totally right <laughs> second biblically god is identified by many names elohim for one that's Genesis 1-1 right there. El Shaddai, uh, Adonai, as you just said, which is kind of Lord. Um, and anyway, it goes on all kinds of little, little constructions to talk about God. It is not the case that in God's revelation about himself in the scriptures that he demands that his people refer to him simply by, uh, by, by one name. Um, even think about the scandal of the New Testament uh, of Jesus referring to God as father, introducing this like fatherly, I mean, the a fatherly paradigm has always been there, but the language of father, that intimacy that Jesus uses and that uh, the apostles used as well for that matter. And so kind of the, the, the claim that we're the ones who, who sort of are the only ones who are properly approaching God with his covenant name. It's just, it's kind of bizarre and sort of uh, flies in the face of how, both testaments speak about God mm -hmm. and encourage the people of God to speak about and to him. So we obviously have a disagreement on the revelation of God. So we're interpreting the scriptures differently from different translations. Um, and I could see somebody from the outside going, yeah, that's just so in the weeds. Y'all are the same. Um, okay, there's different names. Y'all say there's more. They say there's one. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of small stuff. Um, you've brought up different conceptions of God. Now let's, let's really dive in there. Well, I want to just dive in one more time into maybe this isn't where you want to go, but back into the Trinitarian idea. Um, yes. Because, because the layers just keep spinning. Um, so we've already said that th what they believe is that Jesus was the first creation by Jehovah, by God. Um, 
oh, I, I think I said Gabriel earlier, but it's I see in my notes here I was wrong. Correction. That Michael. Arca- Michael. Um, before the physical world existed, and that he's a lesser and subpar god of some sort in relation to to God. Um, he can still be called the son of God. They they're okay with that language. Um, but then in his incarnation, he became a mere human and not God in flesh. Okay, so now we're suddenly like poking hard again at our Christology from another angle. Really important to hit the historic faith is the idea that when Jesus incarnated, he was fully God and fully man, and he needs to be so. I mean, not only is it the clear teaching of Scripture, but he needs to be so for, for our understanding of how the cross and atonement works, how salvation can be purchased by him. It's a mm-hmm. big deal to, to, to basically say, no, Jesus was just a mere human once he incarnated. Um, and even beyond that, they have some strange beliefs about the Holy Spirit. Actually, not that strange. Maybe a tragically common one for many Christians when they don't understand uh, biblical theology. They, they hold that the Holy Spirit is just sort of an impersonal force related to God and not a distinct person of the Trinity, which which uh, both the scriptures and the creeds keep calling us back to affirming. The, mm-hmm. the Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is an indispensable part. He's The, the scriptures are, are very, very frequently referring to him as such. So, so from those two angles, they're just chipping away at key features of how we understand the God of the universe to exist and to relate. And so... Maybe we'll just say again, these things put them at odds with the biblical account in clear places, more places than we have time to get into right now, and also with something like the Nicene Creed that virtually every branch of Christianity uh, affirms as a reliable, trustworthy summary statement about such matters as as the nature of Mm -hmm. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I want to maybe pause here to note something, an interesting contrast here that that I kind of realized uh, as I was... Uh, diving back into this for this podcast, is to note the contrast between Russell and Joseph Smith of Mormonism that we talked about uh, recently. So Russell's religion, the Jehovah's Witnesses, are born out of one novel interpretation of the Bible. This isn't, you know, I want to say it carefully, but an uneducated novel coming at the Bible with some fresh ideas uh, without really the tools to 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 understand like why the things that he's rejecting were important, how they had been labored over, uh, where they had been derived from the scriptures, why they were necessary to hold other really important doctrines in place for us. Um, so there's that's Russell. And then Joseph Smith on the other side with Mormonism, his religion is one born out of the claim of a new revelation. Remember the golden tablets that he discovered. I have got a new word from God that supersedes uh, the Bible that we had previously. Um, and it's interesting. Given both, like those are two very different ways of coming at this, but they both kind of end up in broadly similar places with the rejection of the Trinity, uh, with doing something weird with the divinity of Jesus. Um, doing something weird with the Holy Spirit, really mangling and mutating the doctrine of God. And it's just interesting to note that kind of our methods for evaluating both of them are just simple and consistent. We can use the same tools, uh, whatever angle people are coming from, to evaluate. It? Okay, you're bringing a claim to the table. It's either through your own individual, you know, individual interpretation of the Bible that we have, or it's through a claim that you've got some kind of new scripture. Let's run it through the same grid. Let's run it through the mm-hmm. same grid. Yeah, that I think that becomes really instructive for us. And uh, it's not as if we're not going to still see people making these same types of claims. I have a new revelation from God. God has spoken to me. 
Well, we need to evaluate that. I think we've done a podcast on what it looks like to um, to speak carefully when we when we talk about God speaking to us, and we're also going to have people claiming interpretations from Scripture that we always have to run through the. Chris, the, the the Jesus lens, the historical Orthodox lens, the church global lens, and uh, it's it's always uh, a work in progress for all of us. We're always going to be evaluating claims that we hear from the culture around us, and I think you've given us just some safeguards and what it looks like to do that. And hopefully, this uh, this podcast and the series that it's in, uh, looking at some of these things, we hope that this is not coming across despairing in any way. We just want to have an honest assessment and evaluation of where there are disagreements, where there are distinctions. And uh, we want to be charitable when we have conversations with people that we disagree with. I think Jesus modeled that really well for us when even his Roman occupiers he was praying for and blessing. And so uh, the way that we go about these conversations is obviously really important. But there are some key differences, and I think you've done a a great job helping us see those. Um, Any final word? One final word is I think what struck me when I was diving into this was how some of these, what we, I think we can fairly call heresies, like they're departing from the one true faith given, um, the, the, the once for all deposit of faith that we've received. I think this is an opportunity, not first of all to say, oh man, they're way off, whatever, although that's fair to say, but to turn inward and go, man, I know there were times in my Christian life, uh, probably far too late into it than is reasonable that I would have said something like, yeah, the Holy Spirit, he's kind of like the, just an impersonal, like the power of God in an abstract sense. Um, some of these doctrines, I, I, I think many of us, we just don't know maybe our Bibles well enough and we don't know the best thinking of Christians throughout, again, the ages and across cultures to be well anchored. And so some of the things that they believe, is like, man, I, I wonder if I taught that on a Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. how many people would go like, hey, hey, that's actually a really important thing that you just got wrong. And they'd be Mm -hmm. able to kind of recognize it. And and I fear, Mm -hmm. I fear to think, um, sometimes even for myself, would I be sharp enough if if it was coming from someone that I trusted to to snag that? So I, I think, I think in these conversations, there's actually a call for us to go, man, theology really matters. And Mm -hmm. some of these things that end up getting you way away from the saving gospel of Jesus, um, they can start as little seeds that we might not catch. And so I think it's just Mm -hmm. a call to double down on just, man, loving God with our minds and in the word that he's given us, the scriptures he's given us, and taking really seriously the task to, to think our thoughts after his, if that makes sense. That is well said and a good reminder, I think, for all of us. So, uh, and as always, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of Curiosity. If you found it helpful, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with a friend. To suggest a topic, reach out to us on Instagram at OOCuriosity. We'll see you next time.